My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host of a Minor Detail Radio podcast, where the minor details of every story matter. Each week, I talk to Maryland newsmakers, from elected officials, journalists, political candidates, to policy wonks and everyday Marylanders. A Minor Detail podcast is the fusion between Maryland news and politics. Real people, real stories, honest conversation. You can also follow us on the web at aminordetail.com. Sit back, relax, and have fun. Well, it's almost time. Yes, almost time for Christmas. And if you're like my family, if you're like me, you will wait to the very last minute to do your holiday shopping, to do any shopping, really. And you will stand in the scrupulously long lines at Target or other retail stores And you will go so far to get away from even your home target that from Gaithersburg, Maryland, you will drive to Annapolis, Maryland, like I did yesterday with my wife, yes, to go shopping. Well, welcome, everybody, to A Minor Detail. It is almost Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of my Gentile friends. Happy Hanukkah. I know it's belated Hanukkah to all my Jewish friends. And tonight I have a opportunity, the opportunity, to have a good friend of mine and the new elected Montgomery County House Delegation Chairman, Mark Corman from District 16. He's a state delegate. He's going to join us on the show, and he's going to tell us all about what's going to be happening in session. Delegate Corman, thanks for joining us on the Festivus um, for the rest of us here on December 23rd. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, I, I believe this is your first op- – I believe this is the first time you've been on the show. It, it is. I've been waiting. So this is like a, a, a late Hanukkah or early Christmas present for me that you finally asked me on. So. Yes. Well, happy Hanukkah to you um, and to your family and to your two children and your wife. Um, but it's it's very exciting to have you on the show, and I know, I know when, when I when I asked you yesterday if you'd be interested in coming on, um, I, um, I I understand that you're heading out of town. We're going to Florida tomorrow, so we just had to make sure oh. every, we were far enough along on the packing that I could uh, uh, spare the time. But the kids are asleep, the suitcases are packed, uh, nothing good. is stirring, so I'm uh, good to go. So um, all is all is common, uh, all is bright uh, down in Bethesda tonight so <laughs> right <laughs> well very good um delegate it's a real pleasure to have you uh, uh for the first time and i'm sure i'm sure first of many and as we try to make this program work in annapolis as you probably are aware um i'm going to be doing a uh, a live gig here on thursday nights at harry brown's when annapolis kicks off beginning on january the 17th so it's going to be a lot of fun it's going to be my first actual opportunity to cover session as a journalist and as a podcaster and as a blogger I, I i hate using blogger but it's there's really no other found name yet that we can call ourselves but anyway it's going to be a fun opportunity there's a lot going on in session delegate corman and so tonight um i want you to talk about what 
you as the chairman um, and as a District 16 representative, what you intend to accomplish, what's on the docket for Montgomery County. And let's just talk, um, you know, about what you your expectations are for session. There's a lot of new incoming members. But first, let's talk about you and a little bit about you. And I know that uh, politicians and public servants like yourself, I'm sure you hate talking about yourself, but uh, we'll kick off off the show. Um, You are a, you were first elected in 2014. Uh, I believe you grew up in Montgomery County and then you of course went off to California. You got a, um, you worked for a member of Congress. You got a law degree. Uh, You went to Johns Hopkins um, and You've also you also graduated from law school, like I said, from University of Maryland. So let's let's talk a little bit about you. Um, how did you get involved in politics? What was the drive for you? Where was the spark? Yeah, I mean, I would say I was always interested, but um, for me, it was the 2000 election. You know, oftentimes presidential elections um, focus people's minds on politics. You still meet a lot of uh, more seasoned folks in this area who say they came to Washington with Kennedy. Uh, obviously, a lot of people uh, a little younger than me were very much inspired by uh, Barack Obama. Um, for me, it was the 2000 election and what I viewed as a very difficult election, uh, where I first sort of stormed into the college Democrats at USC, where I went for undergrad, and said, how could you let this happen? How could Al Gore lose? And uh, a guy who I didn't know at the time, but is now a very good friend of mine, actually his brother was just to the state legislature in Massachusetts, uh, said to me, you know, what are you blaming us for? We didn't see you out there registering voters. We didn't see you out there knocking on doors. Of course, Al Gore safely won uh, California's electoral votes anyway, but, yes, he uh, did. but I was all steamed up. And uh, I thought this guy who I didn't know, but is now a good friend, made a good point, And I sort of never wanted to feel that way again. And so I stayed very involved. Um, after that, as you mentioned, I went to work uh, on Capitol Hill, I ended up working for actually two different members of Congress uh, over the course of my uh, time there. And then when I moved back to, to D.C. or to the D.C. area, uh, it was just a very logical extension for me to get involved with the Young Democrats and the Central Committee and, and all that stuff. And so it just sort of one thing led to another. And in 2014, when we thought we were going to have two openings in my district, District 16, I threw my hat in the ring. We ended up with only one opening, uh, but, uh, you know, it worked out. And uh, I was excited to win then, of course, and then, of course, just be reelected uh, a couple months ago. So, Well, 2014 was an interesting year for District 16. I remember it well. I remember it so well that one of your delegates uh, was ultimately considering running for attorney general, as well as the former state senator from District 16 who actually ran for attorney general. And we know how that story turned out. Bill Frick decided that it wasn't probably the best decision for him to run for dele- uh, for district or for attorney general. He then came back and then decided to run for reelection to the House of Delegates. And Bill Frick is an outgoing delegate now. He ran for Congress very briefly and Maryland's 6th Congressional District, and then ultimately dropped his bid and decided to instead run for Montgomery County Executive and was defeated in the Democratic primary earlier this year and June. So I am sure that whatever Delegate Frick his future will be. I am sure that he will be very successful at it. And I, I have always built a great relationship with Delegate Frick, and I'm excited to see what his career, um, how it unfolds. He's a smart guy. Wow. He's a young man. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, he was he was a great member of the House. I mean, a couple of things in particular. Uh, he was the lead sponsor of the last increase to the renewable portfolio standard, our renewable um, energy goals for the state, which maybe we'll talk about because I think that'll be back this session. He also yep. passed legislation uh, related to uh, creating um, state-supported retirement accounts for those who don't get that through their employer, really important legislation. And, of course, he was a very um, successful member in our in our leadership. He became parliamentarian relatively quickly. He became um, majority leader. So he had a very uh, successful career. I'll just say the one night of the filing deadline in 2014 was a tough one when he dropped back in at the last minute and, of course, easily walked to uh, – to re-election, but very smart guy, very hardworking. Our, our dads actually used to practice law together, so I've known him a long time. And I agree, whatever he does next, he's going to be uh, uh, going to be very successful. I like District 16. I like the delegation. Senator Susan Lee is um, a formidable state senator. When she took over um, for the longtime state senator Brian Frosch, who then, of course, became Attorney General of the State of Maryland, and then. You have a, a, a new member of the delegation, Sarah Love, who I believe won the primary by, what, some staggering 11 votes? I think it I was think after a, the recount, it was down to that much. It was a really wild, uh, very close race. It and was. And, of course, Delegate, uh, Delegate Ariana Kelly is, uh, was also reelected. Yes, she was. So, of course, the District 16 delegation's makeup is now State Senator Susan Lee, yourself, Ariana Kelly, and... Sarah Love, who was the former ACLU policy director uh, for the state of Maryland, and I have no doubt that she will be another formidable member of the District 16 caucus. I'm excited for for this caucus. You are um, a shining star in Annapolis. Uh, People really respect you, Uh, Delegate Corman. They see you as uh, a rising star in Annapolis, uh, based on a couple of attributes that you're level-headed, you are pragmatic, and you've taken, um, uh, you have a yearning passion, so it seems, for fixing the broken DC metro system, and which is complicated, and which is also a, a major, major infrastructure system that we rely on as Montgomery Countyans. In fact, that I would go as far, insofar as to say that that Western Maryland relies on and the really the Metro DC here, not just Montgomery County, but all of DC and the, the Metro DC region, we heavily rely on this Metro system and let's just kick off. Let's go right into it. Are there any, what do you see as far as Metro uh, being relevant in this session? Will it be, do you think that uh, we'll have another discussion um, amongst legislators and Governor Hogan and his team about the D.C. metro system? Yeah, so first of all, let me say, obviously, it's most important in Montgomery and Prince George's County because at least on the rail side and the bus stops, the the stations themselves, and when it comes to Maryland, are all in Montgomery and Prince George's County. But as you alluded to, it actually has statewide importance. I mean, people who come down on the Mark train from Frederick or further out in western Maryland uh, they, when they get off at Union Station, are not going to work in Union Station. They're getting on the Metro. We have folks who drive up from Southern Maryland, park at Branch Avenue in Prince George's County, uh, and Metro in. Similarly, in the Baltimore suburbs, we'll ride in on the Cannon Line or the Penn Line of the Mark Train, uh, and when they get off at Union Station, get on the Metro system. So we're actually able to chart a little bit of that and show how many riders there were from different parts uh, of the state. For example, about 10,000 daily riders from Anne Arundel County, about 7,000 daily riders. Hmm. Uh, from Frederick. And so it actually has 
statewide importance. And obviously also it has statewide importance from an economic development angle. Uh, the reason Marriott moved uh, from its current office or is in the process of moving from its current office park location to downtown Bethesda is the metro. The reason uh, Montgomery County was a, a shortlisted finalist for Amazon is the presence of metro. So really important. Last year, um, you know, we had a really important uh, bipartisan regional success in for the first time since Metro was created, setting up dedicated funding uh, for the system. Uh, we've already been investing a lot of money in Metro, but this creates a stream of certain funding that will allow Metro to issue bonds on that, uh, on that money and really do a good construction program to continue with that really important rebuild um, they've been doing. And again, that was a success that was bipartisan and regional. I mean, in the Senate, for example, of Maryland, it was unanimous, all 47 senators uh, voted for that funding. Obviously, Governor Hogan signed it uh, and, and worked with us on it, and uh, we had a bipartisan vote in the House. Same with Virginia, very bipartisan success. D.C., uh, bipartisan is not the right word for the way D.C. is structured, but again, there, no. a, a lot of support. Uh, I think what you're going to see this coming session is a little bit more of a step back and see how it's working um, kind of a situation, more back into the oversight, which we've tried to restore um, beyond any legislation or bills, make sure that people at WMATA, at Metro, really understand that they're being watched and we expect them uh, to perform. We expect them to invest this money appropriately in the rebuild. We expect them to prioritize safety. And frankly, we also expect them to prioritize service, which has been one of the challenges with Metro. We want a safe system. We want a system where uh, the investment is being made appropriately. But it also has to be a system that people want to ride. Because just moving empty trains back and forth is, uh, you know, fun for train guys like me, but not all that useful uh, for the region. So we want to make sure they're prioritizing along with safety service so that people are, are going back to using Metro. Ridership has uh, dropped for a while and now sort of flatlined, and we want to make sure that it uh, starts to rise up again and it becomes a, a really, uh, you know, first-class useful system for the region and for the state. Journalist Matthew uh, Iglesias of Vox, uh, Vox Vox.com, he wrote a piece back in, uh, in fact, December 2017, December 29th, to be exact. And the title of the the piece that he wrote is called How to Make Metro Great Again. And he talks about, right now, he mentioned, as you just did, that Metro is in the midst of a pronounced decline that seems driven primarily because by a declining level of service frequency and the urgent need to do a bunch of repairs and then in turn that was driven by a series of bad breakdowns themselves and then reduced ridership. So we saw uh, in the last couple of years that the metro system has been unreliable for DC commuters and it's partially because it, the, the trains often do break down. So what is it that um, you know, based on your expertise and your research, what is it that we need to do? Is it the outdated cars? I know that they've replaced several of the cars, especially on the red line. I've taken them. The 700 trains are, are I think, the se- not 700, but 7,000. 7,000, yeah. yeah. Um, they're fantastic. I, I take them in and out of D.C. quite frequently when I go downtown. And it's it's real, actually, it's real. it's actually a pleasure. It's a market upgrade from the old yellow... Uh, carpeted metro cars that have a funny stench to them um, and just they're just old and you got into the system and you got into the car and you felt like delegate you were back in the 70s late 80s and it just had no sense of modernity in the cars but they updated that so 
Do you see the entire Metro cars system being upgraded to the 7,000 model? Yeah. So they're, you know, they're in the process of buying the 7,000 series. It's not perfect. There have been some issues with the 7,000 series. There's been the terrible problem of how the blind interact with the cars. There have been some software Mm -hmm. problems on them, but overall, if you look at the numbers, they break down and have uh, and get taken out of service far less frequently than those older trains. And so that makes a huge difference because if you don't have to offload the trains as often, uh, that's not creating the same kind of backups and problems on the system, makes it much more rideable. You know, the truth is, uh, uh, WMATA for the rider, and I'm a daily rider nine months a year. I ride from Bethesda to Farragut North for my day job. Metro is only as sort of reliable as the last breakdown you've had. So if we can make those breakdowns, you know, fewer and further between, that obviously is going to make a difference with ridership and draw people back. The rail car investment is a big part of that, but it's also a lot of really basic um, track and tunnel work that needs to happen. Um, And a lot of that stuff is not exciting. It's not the same as, you know, opening the Silver Line or eliminating the Grosvenor Turnback, which we just did, or eliminating the Silver Spring Turnback, which we hope to do, which is when only half the cars go to the end of the lines in the red line. But it's the kind of work that has to be done. They need to go in there and replace a lot of train ties, seal a lot of tunnels so there's less water infiltration, replace those cars. And those things over time are going to make the system work better, and that's what's going to bring back ridership. There was a 20 to 25-year period where the, that investment was not being made as it needed to, so there's a long way to go. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, there does seem to be some improvement. But you know, it, there's never going to be a moment where we get to say, Metro's fixed, Metro's solved, the, the problem's over. You know? uh, it, it's never going to have that kind of moment. It's just going to be slowly over time. People are going to feel more comfortable with it, feel better about it, and ridership is going to you know, uh, uh, tick up as a result of people, you know, thinking it's going to get them from point A to point B in the amount of time that they're willing to spend. I'm reading a Washington Post article by Robert McCartney, an excellent journalist, and uh, written on March 22nd that said, uh, and I quote, Maryland will give Metro its full share of $167 million a year in new permanent funding and the governor and leaders of both legislative chambers said Thursday, putting the transit system on track, no pun intended to win a historic regional deal to support it. So that figure, 167 million, I assume that's what, is that Maryland, what they are on the hook for each year for Metro? How does that funding system work delegate? Sure. So we now dedicate three streams of funding to Metro as a state and in Maryland, um, everything comes from the state. Now, of course, it's all the taxpayer dollar, taxpayers' dollars, but just by comparison, in Virginia, most of the money comes from the local governments. Again, all the taxpayer dollars, but from an accounting standpoint, it comes from the, the counties and the cities in northern Virginia. In Maryland, it's been a state obligation for about 25 years. Uh, everything comes from the Transportation Trust Fund. Uh, historically, there was an, an annual operating subsidy. That was money to literally run the trains, pay the workers, Maryland's share of that. Some of that is offset by uh, fares and other revenues, of course, um, but really no transit system in the country and very few around the world uh, entirely pay for themselves. Most have some kind of subsidy. Uh, The ones that do pay for themselves have um, lots of uh, real estate that they own around the stations that allow them to sort of cross uh, subsidize. So the operating subsidy is one piece. That's been uh, in the neighborhood of several hundred million dollars a year recently. It's sort of gone up from 150 million uh, recently to over 200 million. There's been a historic capital subsidy, which is negotiated every few years, every three or four years. There's been a capital funding agreement that the region negotiates where they figure out what each jurisdiction 
is uh, is going to contribute. Uh, and now we've added this new dedicated funding source. And the, the reason the dedicated funding source is important is for the reason I referenced earlier, which is it's not a three or four year deal. It's a permanent source of funding that Metro can issue bonds on and do a capital uh, improvement program the way we have at the state or county level where we can issue, you know, general obligation bonds that are backed, you know, by the state or the county uh, to really invest significant funds. Uh, and so with that $167 million a year, we're now contributing uh, more in the neighborhood of $650 million a year total as a state to Amana. So it's a significant uh, investment of money, uh, and Virginia and D.C. are contributing something uh, similar, but it moves a lot of people and, of course, is really important to us uh, economically. And so that's why it was viewed, you know, again, on a bipartisan and regional basis as a really uh, critical, uh, critical investment. Yeah, and if anybody is interested in reading the article written by Robert McCartney of the Washington Post, the headline is Metro gets third and final yes as Maryland commits to its full share of dedicated funding. The dedicated funding will be a that, – that's extremely important, um, especially because we know that we pay our share. That, and, and let me ask you this question. Do you know approximately the number of Marylanders who ride Metro – um, on the daily throughout the year. I, I don't know that number. It's not a number I can recall off the top of my head. We did get a report on this a few years ago. That's why I had got the numbers for the other counties. Um, and of course, we're talking, we're sort of focusing on the rail in our conversation, but of course, Metro is also uh, Metro bus, which has a lot of riders and then Metro access, right. which is our regional paratransit solution. So Metro is not only uh, the rail system, although I think for many of us, that's the first thing that uh, comes to mind, but I can send you a link to the it was the HB 300 report that has all the actual uh, numbers. Sure. I just don't recall off the top of my head, uh, um, you know, the, how many. I can tell you when I looked at it, the last time I looked at it, about thirty thousand people get on the red line stations in my district per day, and my district okay. that, that basically is Friendship Heights uh, up to White Flint are all sort of lining District 16. So it's uh, it's a decent chunk of. Uh, of people and of course it's important not only for metro riders that metro work but it's important for drivers also because you don't want me nine months a year getting into my car and adding more traffic going into dc much better to have me and, and thousands of others like me on the trains because some people are going to drive and that's fine people should be you know should be free to do that uh it's just we need a balanced uh, a balanced approach well, that leads me to yield into a, a new topic of uh, the other infrastructure issues that we face in Montgomery County that will require federal, state, and local uh, support. And I, I hope I have the county council's attention. And when we discuss this issue, that is fixing the, the obvious and pronounced problem that is Interstate 270. What you just said rung true to me as someone who commutes from Gaithersburg to Rockville every day. You don't want me necessarily getting into my car every single day. Uh, if there was an opportunity for me to take a direct bus route, I would. I mean, it would take 15 minutes. Uh, it would be much more convenient for me if I could walk out to uh, a main uh, a, uh, road that is nearby my home and just catch a bus and be in Rockville within 15 minutes. We want less cars on the road. That's the ultimate goal for numerous reasons. That We want less cars. However, we know right now that Interstate 270 is a parking lot on most days between the hours of 5.30 a.m. until about, I don't know, 9 o'clock, and then it clears out, and then usually 
beginning around three o'clock, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, but until about seven or seven thirty. I we I experienced that. My wife, she travels every day from Gaithersburg to downtown Bethesda. She works at BCG and so she experiences that traffic delegate. So what what are Montgomery County delegates? What is the delegation um, on the whole? What are they looking at to to talk about? And what will be the collaboration with the county council as well as our federal government? Yeah, I mean, you know, the truth is the big proposal hanging out there right now, as you know, is from the governor, what he calls the traffic relief plan. Uh, yeah, let's which talk is this about proposal. That. Um, yeah, I mean, his, his proposal right now, the one that's sort of being prepared for uh, private bid is to add two lanes in each direction from the American Legion Bridge uh, around 495 to 270 north at 370, so right at Sandlog Highway, with the idea being in the future they think they're going to come back and, do, and extend that even further, uh, 370 you know, north uh, on 270 into Frederick. Uh, I think you know, it, it sounds nice, like you know, who doesn't want less traffic? I mean, I think that's a worthy goal, but I don't think that's really the stakes. It's not do you want less traffic or not. It's how do you go about trying to create that better future of less traffic. And I think for a lot of us, the idea of handing over to the private sector the right to build um, what could be pretty expensive toll lanes uh, just isn't doing it for us. It's not what's going to lead to that um, uh, better traffic flow. I mean, first of all, if you're going to make this kind of investment, uh, a lot of us believe you know, transit should at least be a part of that discussion. And um, right now it's really not. And so that's really important. Not that everybody, again, has to ride transit. It's not that 100% of people have to get out of their cars. It's actually a relatively small percentage of people who, if they shift um, the time of day or, you know, how they're traveling, can make a big difference in traffic flow. I think also importantly, um, you know, I don't fully know all the details of this, but if you look at what the county councils um, proposed before, you were talking about the parking lot on 270 in the morning and right. evening. Well, the truth is that parking lot is only in one direction, right? Yes. I mean, I've, I've commuted on 270 not regularly because of where I live and where I work, but I'm very familiar with that commute. I used to live off 270 in Rockville. That's where I grew up. Uh, I certainly had to go in, that, you know, in, in the direction of the traffic uh, both mm-hmm. times of day at various times. Uh, so it is mostly, you know, not all. There's always some people traveling in, in weird patterns, so you would never reverse every road. Um, but just as uh, Canal Road, right, is reversed to go in in the morning to D.C. and out at night, uh, you know, the county council's proposed doing something similar on 270 with reversible uh, lanes. So I think that kind of solution is a little bit more interesting than let's just add two toll lanes in each direction, which feels a little bit like uh, the governor sort of grabbed a magic marker with a map and said, this is, you know, this is how we're going to, quote, unquote, solve the um, problem. I, you know, just one more thing about this is there's, been, there's a bit of a um, – disconnect going on, which is the governor has announced that this is his plan, two lanes in each direction, but there's also uh, unfolding right now this environmental impact statement process that the state is running uh, under the you know, federal uh, National Environmental Policy Act requirements. And under that review, they're looking at alternatives. So it's not just the two lanes in each direction that the governor has said. And so there's this disconnect where on the one hand, um, they've said, this is our solution. This is what we're going to do. On the other hand, they're sort of what seems like pretending to study other options. And I think that's a little disconcerting for a lot of people. And a lot of my constituents have expressed surprise that none of this seems to require a vote of the legislature, right? So with the $167 million for Metro, for example, that required an affirmative vote of the legislature. This proposal doesn't require that. The governor's operating under uh, his authority under the public-private partnership law and, and our general 
um, budgeting rules. And I think this is a really big deal. Um, I respect that the governor was uh, elected by the state of Maryland or reelected, um, but so were the, the, the delegates and senators in the county council. And so we think there should be a role for the legislative branches as well uh, to work with our executive leaders to figure out what's a solution that is, you know, going to solve the problem and, um, you know, not just sort of uh, make a big, bold claim because you want nice headlines, but really, you know, get to what you're talking about, which is sort of a better future for those who have to commute on that corridor. That has been the criticism aimed at Governor Hogan by several members of Montgomery County's delegation, as well as our local county council and former council members, that when the governor drafted his plan to fix Interstate 270, Delegate Corman, that they simply just weren't at the table. And I think that's a fair criticism. And I put fix in quotes because it's not really clear that this will fix it. I mean, generally speaking, if you widen lanes in uh, roads in populous areas, uh, demand will induce, right? And so they'll just fill back up. And you can find the articles from the late 90s when they expanded 270 to District 17, where you live, where I grew up. And the engineers said, wow, those lanes, they, they, they filled up a lot faster than we expected. Now, in this case, they're going to toll the lanes, or at least that's the plan, the plan. And so they say, well, they won't fill up as quickly because we're going to toll them. Well, the problem with that is that means people aren't riding in the lane. So what have you done in terms of resolving traffic? You're still going to have that unidirection parking lot that you were talking about, you know, uh, inbound in the morning, outbound uh, at night. But you're just going to have expensive toll lanes for the few who can afford to ride on them. So there's, there's definitely some issues there that just sort of need to be uh, worked out. And it would be good if we could work them out in a collaborative fashion instead of sort of being dictated to, which unfortunately has been a bit of what's been going on uh, thus far. I think that's a fair criticism. I do. I believe that this is definitely has to be a synergistic approach, that there's collaboration, especially between delegate, uh, rather, District 15, well, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Uh, this is a, a massive issue that uh, there is an opportunity to fix the American Legion Bridge. It's just the, the question of how. What is the process? How much is it going to cost? What is the plan? What is the strategy? And once I, be, I believe that once we begin to fix the American Legion Bridge, we move upwards from there, we go north. And then the question is, will residents of Montgomery County be open to perhaps widening of roads? And, and that's going to be a big fight. And I already see that uh, among activists who say, no, we're not going to allow this. This is something we're going to push back against the governor as well as tolls. I used to work in Northern Virginia delegate, and I would occasionally jump on to 66 earlier in the year, and I would really try to avoid getting on the, the easy pass toll roads. You, you're looking at sometimes upwards of you know, $30. That's, that's expensive for someone like myself who's a, a middle-class guy with a wife and two children and public schools. I, and I, I don't, I couldn't afford that every day. I don't think most Marylanders yeah, can look, afford those every day. Yeah. And, and it's a policy choice. And look, if you look at the Dulles toll road, um, there are tolls there. Um, they not only go for the road though, they've also gone to support the silver line. And so I think that makes it a different calculus for a lot of people. Whereas, you know, what they're talking about on 270 and 495 would really just be to, to, to pay the sort of private vendor. But we should talk about 495 for a second because the situation around Please. 495 is very different than the situation on uh, 270 because of the physical limitations of the space. Uh, I mean, you have a hospital, you have parkland, you have homes. I mean, 
I'm, it's not clear to me how you can add lanes to 495. And we've gotten a lot of um, what I would call sort of blasé assurances from the secretary and from the uh, governor about this, but they've never really explained how you're going to be able to add capacity there without uh, taking land, taking homes, taking businesses, which they claim they're not going to do. But if you look at some of the documentation, it's a little less decisive in the actual documentation than it is in some of their verbal rhetoric. And so I think that's a really big issue around 495. Again, you know, different places are different parts of the road are different. Uh, if you go really far north on 270 towards Frederick, that's very different than the very jam-packed in developed area around 495 and the sort of Silver Spring area. Uh, and so I think there just needs to be a much more, uh, a much better conversation about that. And thus far, just to be honest, the MDOT, the Maryland Department of Transportation, and the governor's office have not been willing to have that conversation. And that's been uh, difficult for a lot of us. Fair enough. Uh, moving on to the delegation. You were elected chairman of the delegation. Do you have any competition? Uh, we there has not been, I think, an actual recorded vote for delegation chair in all of recorded history, as far as anybody can tell. <laughs> so usually we uh, tend to work these things out. But you know, we had a weird situation. Shane Robinson, who had been our uh, terrific chair for four years, uh, did not uh, get reelected, and so it was just sort of a, a strange uh, transition period. So really excited to be chair. With uh, we have ten new members uh, of our 24 delegates. The year I came in, there were only five new members. Vice chair is Al Carr from District 18. Uh, who's been serving for about 11 years in the legislature now. And then we also have a caucus chair in Ariana Kelly and a caucus vice chair in Janelle Wilkins, who is an even newer delegate than me uh, from District 20. And so we've got a really nice uh, team of folks to uh, try to help us uh, as a county, as a county team, uh, navigate the uh, the halls of Annapolis. I believe there's a new delegate in every single district, if I'm not mistaken, or at least I think except one... 14. I think 14. Yeah, I think 14 is the one that was um, uh, right. steady. Although even there, Delegate Queen is a relatively new delegate. She's not That's right. The term yet. So um, we've definitely had uh, a lot of turnover. And you know, the delegation um, now looks a lot more like Montgomery County. You know, Montgomery County yeah. um, used to look uh, more of it. Used to look like you and I. And now it's a majority minority county, as you know, and our delegation reflects that a little bit better than it used to. It's actually majority female. We have 13 um, female delegates. We have African-American men, African-American women, Latino, Latina, uh, gay, straight, Asian-American. And so it's uh, the delegation is definitely sort of developing uh, as a whole, which is good because, you know, as you know, part of what we have to do in Annapolis is explain what Montgomery County is, what we look like. Uh, what it's really like on the ground here. And the reputation is a little bit different than the reality. We have great assets in Montgomery County. We have great, um, we have great um, uh, constituents, great amenities, you know, great opportunities, but we also have some significant challenges. And the delegation looking more like the county really does, I think is going to help uh, make people realize that in Annapolis. The delegation, I presume, is unified in its policy agenda and each separate uh, district, starting out with District 14 that goes into 20 to 39, uh, they have their own policy goals that they, of course, want to accomplish. But as a delegation on the whole, um, the is let me ask you this question. Is Montgomery County, is it the largest delegation to Annapolis? It is. Okay. Yep. So what are some of the agenda items that the delegation – 
the entire delegation is looking forward to bringing to the legislative table during the upcoming 90-day session? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing that we're always sort of unified about around is uh, education funding, both on the operating side. And we can talk about Kerwin a little bit, although, you know, as you know, the Kerwin Commission, which is this commission looking at the state's sort of operating education expenses, you know, how we hire teachers, how they're trained, what they're paid, what they're teaching, uh, pre-K programs, all these things, uh, is sort of in a little bit of a turnaround state right now. Um, but so that's obviously really important. It's important every yep. year, even when we don't have Kerwin. And then the capital side, the school construction side, has been tremendously important, um, you know, for many years. But I'll say the last four years, um, we have focused um, as very unified fashion as a delegation to try to make sure we're bringing back more money uh, from state accounting for school construction. We've had some success. We've increased uh, state-allocated school construction dollars to Montgomery County by over 50% over the past um, four years. It's not enough. There's a lot more to do. We have overcrowded schools and we have schools that are just aged that need, you know, new HVAC systems and, and other things. Um, but we really had a lot of success there. And I would say those things are the top uh, priorities we have um, going forward into the, uh, into the next session. There'll be other things. Transportation is, has historically been a big one. Uh, last year, the Metro funding was a big um, priority this year. I think this discussion about 270 and 495 is going to be a big, um, a big priority, but um, those are some of the big things that we'll be talking about sort of as a, as a delegation. Of course, districts, individual legislators, um, you know, Democratic caucus, Republican caucus, we don't have any Republicans from Montgomery County right now, but, you know, they have their own sort of priority um, items, but we also have some things that we really want to work on together as a delegation to make sure, you know, the needs of Montgomery County are being met while we're still supporting other parts of the state, because we don't want to be successful here you know, while torturing Carroll or Kent or Howard or Baltimore City, you know, we want uh, a rising tide to lift all boats. Well, having spent some time in Annapolis and understanding to the extent that I do how the session works, the budget always takes up a huge amount of time. It takes precedent, of course. And this gov- the governor of the state of Maryland, uh, if you look at how this governorship and how our state constitution sets it up, it yields tremendous power to the governor in that he sets the budget. In fact, Rich Madalino stated this many times throughout the campaign when he was running for governor, that the Maryland governor, um, as, as instructed by our state constitution, um, yields a significant amount of power, perhaps being the most powerful governorship in the 50 United States. So uh, the budget issue is always um, – a, a very time-consuming and laborious topic to discuss. What's let's skip that. And I, I'm interested to see. <laughs> I, I mean, it's so it's, it's very complicated. Come on. <laughs> uh, well, we. Well, well okay. No, no, instead kidding. of skipping it all together. Well, instead of skipping it all together, tell me um, whether maybe the highlights. Are there going to be any major fights, or is there going to be any? pushback against the governor. Obviously, we don't know what the budget looks like yet, but um, will the governor be able to say that uh, in the year of 2019, he has dedicated the most amount of education funding yet in a single budget? Is that is that going to be yes. a plausible remark from the governor? I mean, I guess by law, he has to. Yeah, so I think, first of all, to your point about it taking up so much time, I mean, something the Speaker of the House always says is that the budget's the one bill we have to pass to go home, which is true under the state constitution. So all this other stuff is great, but the budget is sort of the, 
the sort of key piece of business. The governor's power on the budget, what you were describing, is basically on the operating side, um, the governor can set the level of spending and the legislature can cut line items but cannot increase an operating budget line item for the next budget year. We have some tools to allow us to uh, potentially increase it in future years or some other you know, sort of things we can do that have happened. Um, but generally, it's, it's the governor's authority to set, and we can only reduce, we can't uh, increase. I think we're entering a strange year because for the first time in a long time, the budget projections for the coming fiscal year are well in surplus. Um, it's probably mm-hmm. the first time since the Great Recession. Uh, the long-term budget projections, sort of the out years, don't look that way. But this, the, what will be fiscal year 20, the budget is in surplus. And so there's a little bit less pressure than there's been the last 10 or 12 years for the governor to propose um, cuts and changes. And those cuts and changes could come both in the level of operating spending, but where both Governor O'Malley and Governor Hogan have also put a lot of their eggs is in changing various funding formulas. Uh, And it doesn't look like we're going to have to do that in this coming budget year because the budget's in surplus. And so I think there'll be less fights for that reason. Where you will see fights is the amount of money that's been set aside for education above and beyond the formulas because of the new education lockbox that we all voted for at the ballot this past year. Yes. How that money is allocated is where there's going to be some disagreement. The governor has stepped forward with a pretty expansive plan for school construction. Uh, A lot of folks need school construction all around the state. It's really important. You know, I spoke about it a few minutes ago, but a lot of people also have their eye on that funding for the Kerwin Commission uh, recommendations, whether it's this year or next year. And of course, the truth about that money is most of that money, really, that casino money, is not new money. Uh, I mean, there might be some increase in casino revenue over time, but that's money we've been spending on other things. And so that that will be a little bit um, uh, tricky budget-wise to negotiate all that. But overall, the budget picture for next year is one of surplus, which is different than the three years I've been there and really the, the 10 or 12 years before that. Tell me a little bit more about some of the hot-ticket items that will be on the docket this year in Annapolis that people typically will come down and testify um, in support of or in opposition to? Do you anticipate this particular session being contentious? Look, the governor just was reelected by uh, an overwhelming majority of Marylanders. uh, And he, uh, I don't, I wouldn't say that he has any particular mandate, but I believe that he clearly was elected by a Republican, nonetheless, in the state of Maryland, by uh, a significant number. Do you anticipate any true legislative battles that are going to unfold on the House floor? What do you see happening in this session that will yeah, uh, be yeah. something newsworthy that um, you know guys like myself will just love to cover? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the House floor, obviously the, the situation there is very different than the governor's race. Um, you know, the Democrats picked up eight seats on the House floor. Uh, and so the Republican caucus on the House floor is, um, you know, uh, on the decline, you know, based on the last election. I think, you know, s- some issues that could be um, hot button. One uh, is a potential minimum wage increase. Um, I think that's something that's sort of been on the docket for a long time. And um, I expect that will probably, um, you know, be back at the forefront. It's sort of an interesting one for Montgomery County because it's probably going to be the sort of fight for 15 initiative. And as you know, um, Montgomery County is already uh, moving in that direction on a, on a path over the next um, 
three or four years now, I think, of where that's being phased in. So even for the business community in Montgomery County, they actually support raising the minimum wage to $15 at the state level. But that's one where you could see the governor, as he did on earned sick leave, um, you know, maybe take a different view than the majority of Democrats in the House and Senate. Another one is, as I referenced earlier, when we were talking about my friend Delegate Frick, uh, there'll be another push to increase the renewable portfolio standard, which is the percentage of electricity we generate from renewable sources in the state. Mm. This is something the governor vetoed. Uh, he vetoed Delegate Frick's bill a few years ago, and that veto was overridden. Um, what's odd about that is uh, the RPS, as it's known for short, actually began under Governor Ehrlich, a Republican, so it actually has a bipartisan history. But Governor Hogan has not shown much uh, love for it, I'll put it that way. Uh, and so that's one where I think you know, that issue is going to be back. It's the top priority for a lot of folks in the environmental community, so you could see some fighting there. One where you may see less fighting, you know, to end this little point on a positive note, is health care, um, where uh, last year there was a great bipartisan um, negotiated success on this reinsurance program to help with the Obamacare exchanges. I think that was a temporary solution. So there's going to be discussion of how to deal with that problem in the long term, the really deep increases in the Obamacare um, premiums. And hopefully it'll continue to be a collaborative bipartisan um, approach there. Uh, and it won't just devolve into a partisan fighting like we see in Washington. Speaking of which, yes, the House of Delegates picked up eight seats in the Democratic caucus, which was incredible. That it, that leaves you with a supermajority, of course, and the drive for five that the Republicans orchestrated and attempt to make that a veto-proof Senate. Of course, they picked up, I believe, two seats. They knocked off Jim Mathias on the shore, on the lower shore. It was, a, it was a net gain of one for them. They knocked off Jim Mathias, and they took Jim Brochin's seat. Uh, That's right. Delegate, my former delegate or outgoing delegate, Chris West, won that seat. Um, but they also lost uh, Delegate Gil Bates in Howard County, a Republican lost. So it ended up being a net gain of one uh, for the Republicans. So not quite the five they were looking for. It and was an course, interesting – The story goes – sorry. It was, it was an interesting year, but please continue your thought. Well, I was just going to say, it actually went beyond the, the legislature where, I mean, there were some, I would say, surprising results at the county level. Um, you know, some notable county executive upsets with Democrats winning, but state's attorney races, uh, county commission races, where Democrats really did well sort of overall. And uh, it really shows, you know, Hogan, Governor Hogan was a bit of an outlier. There's a lot of reasons we could talk about why that is. Uh, but he really was an outlier in terms of how he did uh, this election when you look at what else happened uh, in Maryland. I agree. The, oh, the, 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 the legislature is, uh, like I said, eight new members. Uh, the, and what, what sort of piques my interest as someone covering politics in the state of Maryland that I don't always understand among the party activists that the party got together on December the 1st and then elected a new chairman. Kathleen Matthews was ousted as the chairman of the Maryland Democratic Party after what I would consider to be a stunning success. It was something that I still sort of don't understand what happened really other than perhaps the they lost the governorship. But I believe going into the governor's race that no matter who – emerged as the Democratic victor and the Democratic gubernatorial primary, Larry Hogan was perceived as being immensely popular. He had a lot of money, and he ran, a, in, it is my impression, a virtually flawless campaign. So I'm, I'm just surprised that they 
that the party knocked her off as the state party chair. I I thought Kathleen Matthews uh, was uh, an exceptional state party chair, and she certainly has the metrics to prove it. Well, and I, you know, I think the Democrats uh, should thank her when you know when she took the job as party chair. Um, very few other people wanted it, <laughs> so yeah. it was not uh, perceived as a, as a a yeah. It was not perceived as a, a gig that uh, many people were competing very uh, hard for. She did have a challenger, Tony Puka, who's one of our county um, Democratic Central Committee members, but it was not a situation where um, someone who had been running for governor was interested in running for party chair, and obviously. You know, that was different uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I think, you know, Kathy Matthews, I agree with you. I think she did a good job overall. That headline story, though, is the governor's race. That's what a lot of people were focused on. Uh, And, you know, hopefully um, uh, the new chair, Meyer Rockmore Cummings, will build on the success that uh, that uh, Kathleen Matthews had and uh, allow the party to keep uh, to keep moving forward. It is interesting that after all the success the Democrats had, Kathleen Matthews was defeated and on the Republican side where they had what I would say was they, they came up pretty short, you know, other than the governor's race. And I think that was pretty independent of the fact that Governor Hogan's a Republican. Uh, I think uh, Chair Dick Hare, if I'm pronouncing his, his name correctly, didn't have even have an opponent, let alone, you know, get defeated. So just sort of an interesting, uh, interesting parallel there. I believe his name is Dirk Hare, but um, the characterization yeah, – the characterization was on point. Um, so uh, I don't understand the Republican Party after they got, for all intents and purposes, shellacked in the the the, the, the last race, um, notwithstanding the governor. Uh, however, it was Mr. Hare who was quoted in um, in Hagerstown earlier this year referring to Attorney General Brian Frosch as evil. That was a, an intemperate remark, not something that a state party chair or you know anybody in elected office should refer to as a sitting attorney general. I mean, they may have differences, but that was perceived as a, a highly reckless remark by a state party chairman. Um, but if, if it's any indication that this state party chairman could move next door to a, an adjacent uh, – <laughs> To, to an adjacent state and, and run for gov or run for Congress and be elected like Alex Mooney did when he was sure. yeah. uh, in the, the, the state Senate. He actually set up shop in West Virginia's second congressional district uh, back in 2013 and ultimately won a congressional seat in 2014 to some people's surprise and not to mine. I thought that Alex Mooney was a formidable campaigner and someone who clearly was, has politics running through his blood. I want to switch topics just a bit, Delegate Corman. There was an interesting scoop that was reported by Maryland Matters uh, on December the 20th. It was, in fact, Daniel Gaines who wrote the piece where it talks about lawmakers who were accused of 11 sexual harass- harassment incidents in the past year. And she roped in the, the Me Too movement. And ha- you're down in Annapolis. Obviously, you are – I mean, I'm – these things happen. They're unfortunate. They've got to stop. It's something that people do talk about, that it, the, the Me Too movement is on the forefront of everybody's mind, and, and everybody is much more conscious, especially men. I mean, as a man, I will say this, that um, what I would have said maybe 10 years, even if it was jovial or joking to a female friend of mine, I, I wouldn't have said those same things. And And it's all about learning. It's all about education. And it's Truly at the heart of it is respecting women, but I'm hoping that this report that was conducted, that it was released, that 
this will shed some serious light on changing some of that institutionalized behavior that um, some people believe exist in Annapolis. And of course it does, but there's many great things that happen in Annapolis, but people do understand that sexual harassment or Me Too incidents can occur. Do you want to comment on that? Well, first of all, great credit to my uh, seatmate, Delegate Kelly, who the reason we have those numbers is yes. because she worked very hard uh, to pass a piece of legislation uh, that would change the level of accountability for these types of incidents in uh, Annapolis. And again, you know, like all legislative successes, it doesn't automatically solve the problem. It's not perfect. But even having those numbers is new. We're going to have a much more intensive training uh, than, you know, what I got when I came in four years ago uh, on these things. And I think those kinds of stories are really important. I'll also say my, my other seatmate in the House, uh, Delegate-elect Love, um, came out publicly with some accusations about a legislator uh, right. a few months ago. And I think what was important about that um, wasn't necessarily um, – what I thought was important about that was it showed the type of behavior to people that uh, they should be on notice for and should be aware of how they're acting. Because I think for a lot of people, especially older than you and I, they were probably surprised to hear that that type of behavior crossed the red line. And so I think those kinds of stories and transparency is important so that people realize how it is that they're supposed to sort of appropriately behave. And, you know, there's no question that legislator to, to, to young woman, whether that's a staff, intern, lobbyist, um, is, is probably the most problematic kind of behavior. But I think in general how um, – legislators or high-powered lobbyists or others treat everybody else. You know, people should sort of be uh, on call for in terms of verbal abuse. Um, so it's not only sexual assault, although I think that's sort of the worst um, situation, but just generally how you treat interns, how you treat staff. If you're a lobbyist, you know, how you treat the security guard. Uh, I think people just need to, you know, be on notice a little bit and that their behavior needs to be adjusted. And again, full credit to my colleague, Delegate Kelly, for really – pushing forward what can be a difficult conversation. I'll be honest. I've it stood is. next to her at a lot of town halls and uh, meet and greets and, and other things where it can be a little uncomfortable um, hearing the story she has to tell uh, about Annapolis, which is a different way than I, frankly, as a, as a legislator male have experienced Annapolis, but it's really important. And I do think that culture is, um, is changing and that's, uh, you know, that's important. Well, that, that culture exists. I was at one time uh, a Hill staffer about 10 years ago, and I worked on Capitol Hill, and I was subjected to and participated in m many of the Capitol Hill social events where after work, as you know, Delegate Corman, you often attend functions. You attend uh, mixers. You attend various uh, uh, events throughout the Hill, receptions uh, with lots of alcohol and with all the free food that you could imagine. And in fact, if you were a poor Hill staffer like I was, and I was like living in poverty when I worked on the Hill, I can tell you that we would use, we would find various, not only to network at, but the after work receptions, we would eat there too, because we couldn't afford to eat most times. So we would, we would scavenge the Hill and find some interesting receptions and meet really interesting people um, and network and do all the things that Hill staffers do, but the culture exists. And I want to give credit to your colleague as well in District 16, Delegate Ariana Kelly. Um, the, the consent bill, that was incredible. That is such an important bill. My wife was a huge champion of that 
to teach that in public schools. So I'm really proud of yeah, that. Well, the, the person who gets credit for that is not Delegate Kelly. It's Delegate Kelly's daughter, uh, Maeve, who uh, was really yes. the impetus behind that and came and testified and, uh, over a course of a couple of years uh, and really had a huge, uh, a huge impact. Let me ask you this question, and as we wrap up in the next five minutes, um, what's happening nationally, I try to stay away from that as much as I can, but in as someone who does my very best to, to get out a good story, to always provide the facts and journalism and, and, and do the investigative work, and, and it's, it's a passion of mine, and I hope that I can continue to doing it as long as I am able to do so, but where do you see as a as a state delegate, as an elected official, the relationship between you and the press. Obviously, we have a great relationship. You've, you've agreed to come on and talk, and we have an open and honest and engaging conversation. But do you ever see a breakdown between some members uh, in Annapolis between the press? Is there any contention there? It, it's just not viewed the same way that the president views it. I mean, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to benefit from using the um, – the sort of press bullpen area. Um, but that's just a set of offices that's right in the hallway that we all walk by and, and stick our heads in um, all the time. I mean, of course, the situation in Annapolis is just so different because, my gosh, we are like thirsting for press in Annapolis. Um, I think one of the challenges we have in this county and this state and part of the problem we've had with voter turnout in, in non-Trump years is sort of the lack of media yeah. attention. I mean, that doesn't mean I, you know, I like being badgered with questions all the time. But, you know, the point is we want our, uh, what we're doing to get out. We want people to be um, more aware of us. So it's just a very different relationship uh, in Annapolis than what you see in Washington, D.C., and the president's uh, uh, treatment of it. It's a, it's, a, it's a much different atmosphere. But, of course, as you know, um, it's not that I always agree with my Republican colleagues, but overall the relationship and the atmosphere in Annapolis is so different than Washington, D.C. I just agree. In terms of the lack of, of – of, you know, uh, the lack of poison in the air. Um, you know, That's Annapolis right. is a very functional place. Um, I, so. I would, I, I objectively agree with that statement. I've noticed that there is a, a very specific congeniality um, between the, the, the different parties, even though you have some intense discussions, even though you passionately defend a piece of public policy of which you are championing and you go back and forth and you debate it. That's the whole point. Annapolis is functioning and there's always room for improvement. However, I do see that Annapolis is much more unified and much more glued together um, and rather than the, the dysfunction of Washington. And that's unfortunate. Um, I see what's coming yeah, out of Washington. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, there'll be a few headline issues every year where we break down along partisan lines, but a lot of what we do, we pass hundreds of bills, you know, and I think you've probably seen sure. some of the voting sessions down there where we're just pouring through bills because a lot of them are not partisan issues. Um, and a lot of them, we sort of respect the committee process, which is totally different than how Capitol Hill works now, where we sort of say, yeah, the Republicans and the Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee have spent a lot of time figuring out if this obscure change to election law makes sense, we are going to defer to them barring some, you know, reason not to and, you know, approve this bill and let the process go on. So the process works in Annapolis, not to say you always agree with the outcome of that process, but overall there is a process. We meet our deadlines. We mostly do it on a, on a cooperative basis. And uh, that's been actually very positive to experience having served on Capitol Hill as you did 
Uh, I know now the period you and I were up there in the, in the mid aughts is viewed as the good old days, but it wasn't. It was pretty poisonous up there then, too. Uh, and thankfully, Annapolis has not experienced uh, it to that level. I agree. Uh, when I was there during the 2008 election, I enjoyed myself. I wouldn't necessarily consider going back anytime soon. I, I had a great run, and I learned a lot and was educated about the, the congressional process and the legislative process, had a blast. But you know, I think that viewing Annapolis, the, the state legislature does give hope to um, a, a less partisan um, you know, uh, uh, just I would say it's much less partisan in Annapolis, even though that you are um, a Democrat and you have Republican colleagues. Um, you, I see you working together with your colleagues uh, to champion some some excellent bipartisan legislation. So, well, with that, I, I do appreciate your time, uh, Delegate Corman. Congratulations on being elected as Montgomery County's uh, chairman of the delegation. It's going to be an exciting session. I, I will be there, and I'm sure that you and I will run into one another uh, either in the hallway or if you make your way over into Harry Brown's for an evening, uh, you can set in and we can have a follow-up discussion about what's happening. So thank you for, for coming on. To it. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, and please, safe travels. All the best to you and your family and um you have an open invitation on this show at any time. Appreciate it. Have a great night. All right. Thank you, Delegate. Have a great night. All right, everybody. That was Delegate Mark Corman of District 16. We had a discussion about what's happening in Annapolis in 2019. Talked a little bit about Metro. Talked about the budget, education, his expectations, transportation, all critically important issues so with that, I would appreciate if you could check me out on a minordetail.com. You can go to iTunes and find me. Please like me. Please rank the show uh, if you have an extra minute. Um, and uh, would appreciate if you could continue listening into the new year. Again, as I said, we are going to be live every Thursday night beginning January the 17th at Harry Brown's. And I will give further instructions about the room and the location, but we're partnering with MarylandReporter.com, uh, the publisher, editor, Len Lazaric, a good, a good guy, um, one of the best journalists in Annapolis. So a minor detail will be, of course, partnering with MarylandReporter.com for this new adventure. We're going to have a heck of a time. I appreciate you listening. My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host of a minor detail podcast. This very well could be our last podcast, before the end of the year, that means that I will be talking to you in 2019. It's hard to believe 2019. Um, I remember 20 years ago in 1999, I was entering Williamsport High School class. Uh, and then, of course, I graduated in 2013. I was a freshman in high school 20 years ago, and I'm now 33. It's just so hard to believe Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Uh, again, my name is Ryan Miner. This is a Minor Detail podcast. Merry Christmas to everyone. Happy holidays. Be safe out there and have a fruitful and happy new year. Thank you so much.